So when we come to the Lord in saving faith, when the Lord saves us, we become a saint, a child of God, a masterpiece, and a citizen of heaven. This is positionally true in God's mind, and it's practically true here on earth. In other words, salvation, it permanently and indefinitely changes our position before God, and it has a practical effect on how we live our lives. Amen? Now, that's what God has been teaching us through the Apostle Paul's instruction here in Romans 6. And last week, we considered uh, four truths from verses 3 through 7. And I know that you may not remember them, so we'll recap them. But what we said last week is that knowing who we are is critical for our growth in Christ-likeness. Knowing who we are is critical for our growth in Christ-likeness. So here are the four truths. Every Christian has been baptized into Christ. Remember, that's past tense. Past tense. Then the second was every Christian shares in Christ's death. The third, somewhat similar, every Christian shares in Christ's resurrection life. And then every Christian's old life was crucified with Christ. So those four truths that we, that we considered last week in verses 3 through 5, we see some of the same here continuing in verses 8 through 11, which we'll be covering this morning. Now here's what we see. We see that Paul reiterates some of those same truths in 3 through 5, that as the believers have died with Christ, they also have risen to walk in newness of life with Him. As believers have died with Christ, they have been risen to, raise, or to walk excuse me, in, new, in newness of life with Him. And he grounds his, his point there in verses 9 and 10, and then he explains the actions that we must take. Truths that we must know, and then actions that we must take. So that's what we'll see. We'll see some reiteration, we'll see some expansion, and then we'll see some actions that we must take. Are you ready? All right, here we are in verse 8. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would bless the reading and the, the preaching of your word, God. We pray that you would speak to us through your word, that you would transform us by your spirit, because, God, we are so desperate for you. We're so desperate for your instruction, even though our stomachs may be fed, even though our minds may be stimulated. God, we pray that you would feed our souls. Because the football games don't do it. Our favorite hobby doesn't do it. Nothing except for your word. No one except for you. So God, we pray that you would, that you would fill us this morning, speak to us, transform us, and we'll be sure to give you all the praise, honor, and glory, and it's in Jesus' name. Amen. So starting in verse 8, Paul says, Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Continuing on into verse 12, he says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought, or, yeah, been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. So let's consider that reiteration. In verse 8, he says, Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. Now, 
Paul uses the future tense here, and don't get confused, right? He's not pointing uh, to the reality that we'll live with Christ in heaven, that we'll live eternally in His presence in heaven, but to the believer's certainty that all who are in Christ participate in Jesus' resurrection life. Right, this newness of life, Jesus' resurrection life, the same holy life as our Lord. All true believers, everyone in Christ participates in the same holy life as our Lord. Amen? Now, he grounds the certainty here in verse 9, that the certainty um, of all believers' new life, it's rooted in the reality of the fact that Christ will never die again. So how do we know that you participate in this newness of life, in the same holy life as our Lord? Well, he says in verse 9, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. You participate in that. We said last week that you are united with Christ so intimately that what's true of him is true of all who are in him. Right. So what we need to understand here in verse 9, this, this grounding of the believer's certainty is that by re-emerging alive from the grave, Christ proved that he had broken sin's domination, or the domination of sin and death. He, he broke the, the power and the penalty of sin and death, right? That was proven by his resurrection. So when he rose, there was a decisive, complete, and final victory over sin and death. Y'all don't look too impressed. When Jesus rose from the dead, that was the evidence, that was all the proof that we need to, to say sin and death has been defeated. Right? So if you are in Christ, sin and death, the power and the penalty of sin and death have been defeated. Right? That's a little bit different when we're like, oh, because he rose from the grave. Now, if he died, he'd be just a normal person like you and me. But he was the eternal sinless son of God. And he rose from the, from the grave, defeating, finally, completely defeating the power and the penalty of sin and death. 1 Corinthians 15, 54-57 says this, When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, listen, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So in conquering death, Christ also conquered sin because sin and death are inseparably linked. Death is the consequence of sin. And I'll show you in just one second, but... Let's look at the the climax of Paul's argument. Verse 10. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. This is the climax, right? The, The reality that Christ died once for sin is a key concept in the New Testament. That Christ died once for sin, key concept in the New Testament. It's especially prominent in the book of Hebrews. We see it a few times, three or four times at least in the book of Hebrews. I'm going to read one. Because I know that you guys um, are so excited to read everything from Genesis to Revelation. Hebrews 7.27 says that he has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. 
So again, when Christ rose from the dead, he proved that he broke the power of, and the power and the penalty of sin and death for all those who would ever believe in him. So Christ died to pay for sin. And when we say that, when we read that here in verse 10, we need to emphasize at least two things. The first of which being that, that this phrase, uh, he died to sin, we need to understand that, that he was never mastered by sin. Jesus was never mastered by sin. Okay? The second thing is that he never sinned. He was sinless, without sin. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, read it with me, yet without sin. One more time. Yet without sin. So having lived a perfectly sinless life during his incarnation, during his earthly ministry, Christ never had the same relationship with sin that you and I do. He was never mastered by it and he never sinned. So we wonder then, how could Christ have died to sin? But what's clear before we consider this is that whatever way that Christ has died to sin, that believers have also died to sin in this way. Because His death becomes our death and His life becomes our life. That's what Paul has just covered in the preceding nine verses. So... Here are three mistaken beliefs. Three mistaken beliefs. And the first is that, that this, he died to sin. It suggests that, um, that believers, that you and I, all who are in Christ, are no longer sensitive to the allurement of sin. We're no longer sensitive to sin's draw, sin's pull, sin's like allurement. You know what I'm talking about? Now, there are a few issues with that. There are a few issues with that. The first is that this phrase here, it specifically refers to Christ. Specifically refers to Christ, who was never, what did we just affirm? He, he did not have the same relationship with us. He was never mastered by sins. He was never, ever, at any point, sensitive to the allurement of sin. Amen? Okay, so it refers to Christ. If it can't be true of Christ, it's certainly not true of us. Secondarily, secondarily, you and I, just based on our, our walk with the Lord, right? we are sensitive to the allurement of sin. Right? What does John say in 1 John 1.8? If anyone says that they're without sin, they're a liar. They're a liar. Right? We, we know that we are still somewhat at least sensitive to the allurement of sin, but this is what we've been talking about in Romans 6, the believer's holiness, the believer's sanctification. And this is positional, first stage, progressive, our growth in Christ-likeness, and then it's complete at the end when the Lord returns or calls us home. So we're growing. So this, this first one, that, that believers are no longer sensitive to the allurement of sin, is wrong. Others teach that this phrase, it exhorts believers to die to sin. Here's the issue. This contradicts everything that Paul has covered to this point in Romans 6, specifically verse 2. He says, how can we who have died to sin still live in it? If we still need to die to sin, then that contradicts verse 2. The Paul is explaining from verse 2 on what it means to have died, past tense, died to sin. 
And again, Christ being the, the phrase's proper subject, it can certainly not be said of him that he ought to, present tense, die to sin because he did that once for all. We're just, all we're doing is using the word to, to check the word. We come up with all these false conclusions. We've got to get to the word. We've got to get to the word. Now, others, last one, they said that this phrase means that when Christ died to sin, that he became perfect. Now, you and I know this, that he was perfect from the beginning, in eternity past, with the Father. Amen? Amen. He was perfect. So, this cannot mean that when he died to sin, he became perfect. So, it seems that Paul has two meanings in declaring that Christ died to sin. The first, again, is that he died to abolish sin's penalty. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, the free gift of God, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Did you hear that? The wages of sin is death. The payment, the consequence, the penalty of sin is death. So by taking upon himself the sins of the whole world, he met sin's legal demand for all who would ever trust in him. By taking upon himself the sins of the entire world, world. He, he, he abolished sin's penalty. He met the legal demand for sin, the penalty of sin, which is death for all who would ever trust in Him. He met the penalty. He paid the cost. The penalty of sin is abolished in Christ. He did it for all who would ever trust in Him. And since believers have died with Christ, that penalty, their debt has been paid by Christ, never by us. Hear, hear me now. We are united with Him in death. That's what we covered over the last two weeks. His death becomes our death, but He is the one who died for sin. We never, it's never on us. But here's the ultimate choice that every single one of us faces. Either you pay your debt in hell for eternity, or you trust in the one who paid that debt for you. There, there's no other option, right? We like gray. We like nuance. We like this in-between. It doesn't matter if you're Gandhi or Hitler. There's two options. Either you pay your debt in eternity in hell, or you trust in the one who's already paid it. The second thing that we see when he, uh, Paul says he died to sin is that Jesus died to abolish sin's power, right? He died to abolish sin's penalty, but also its power, breaking sin's power over all who belong to the Son through faith, right? And Paul, he even assured the immature and sin-prone believers in Corinth, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, Second Corinthians 5.21 says. Now, who, when they hear that passage, they think of the VBS song? Yep, <laughs> I still can't get it out of my head. That's how good it is. Right, so it, it's, it's hard for us to imagine, right, just think about this, the, the weight of every single sin, of every single person who would ever trust in Him on His shoulders at the cross. But still, by dying and rising, dying on the cross and rising from the dead, he bore that great weight of sin. And in doing so, he broke the penalty. And here we are, the power of sin. Now, that work alone, it allows the believer to enter into a new state of freedom from sin's power. When we sing, in his freedom I am free, 
We're not saying, hey, there's no rules here, like YOLO, do you live your best life now sort of deal. What we're saying is, like, the, the power and the penalty of sin is broken. It's broken. Now I have a new capacity to obey God's will, to walk by the Spirit. Now, another hymn, The Rock of Ages, or excuse me, Rock of Ages, the um, composer of that Augustus Top Lady, he wrote this, Be of sin the double cure, save from wrath. Here it is, that's the penalty. Be of sin the double cure, save from wrath, penalty, and make me pure. That's power. The penalty and the power of sin. So the, more, the moment the Lord saves a person, by grace through faith in Christ alone, we are supernaturally united with Him, with Christ. In His death and our, in His resurrection, they become our death and resurrection. So we are both saved from God's wrath and made pure because we have died to the penalty and the power of sin in Christ. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit leading, guiding, and directing us into Christ-likeness. Does that mean perfection, church? No. But what we should see as we take steps of obedience, sanctification is primarily God's work, but we have an active and a passive role. Passive in the sense that we trust God, active in the sense that we take steps to grow in Christ-likeness. So we should see ourselves becoming more and more like Christ in our walk with the Lord. Now, after John Newton's conversion, this is what he wrote. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I wish to be. I am not what I hope to be. Is that true of anybody else? Yet I can truly say I am not what I once was, a slave to sin and Satan, and can heartily join with the apostle and acknowledge, by the grace of God, I am what I am. You're not what you want to be. You're not what you hope to be. You're not what, you're not what you ought to be. But you can truly say that you are not a slave to sin and Satan. Praise God. Now we get to actions that we must take in verse 11. Verse 11, look with me. He says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul used the, the term no in verses 3, 6, and 9. These are truths. Those truths that we were talking about. We need to know right before we go into do. So what he's been doing is he's been laying a foundation to help us, help the believer understand who they are in Christ so that they can live how God calls his people to live. So the believer's practice and walk, I need you to hear me. The believer's practice and walk with the Lord is always founded upon our position in Christ. Duty is always founded on doctrine. Did you hear that? Duty is always founded on doctrine. So a person cannot live out what they do not know. Now here's the issue. Here's the issue before we all give a heartily amen. Uh, a hearty amen, excuse me. We are in an interesting time, and I don't think it's any more interesting than any other time. I just happen to live in this one, so it's pretty interesting to me. There's an entire generation of people who do not care about growing in their knowledge of the Lord and for the Lord. Right? The Bible's cool. Yes, it's God's Word, but I go to it when there's something wrong. I go to it when I'm stressed out. Any other time, I just want to, like, get to know everybody else. 
I want to talk about problems. I want to talk about wins, losses, everything. That's cool. That has a place. Listen to me. You cannot love who you do not know. So you want to you grow in your knowledge and love for the Lord? Well, you've got to know Him. The way that you know Him is in His Word. So we've got to get in the Word. I want to show you this principle from the Old Testament, just two passages. Hosea 4, 6, God said, My people are destroyed for lack of what? My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. While the children of Israel, they lack dedication, consecration, and commitment when God said this, the underlying issue, the reason that they were failing was that the people had turned away from God's revealed knowledge. They turned away from His Word. They've turned away from His Word. You can't love who you don't know. You can't walk you can't, you can't live the way that God calls His people to live if you don't know Him. The second one, Isaiah 1.3, God said, The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. The children of Israel, they failed to recognize, much less live in life, or live in light, excuse me, of what God had done for them. So understand, let's get back to Romans 6. What, what Paul has been doing here is helping us understand who we are in Christ. He's been building a doctrinal foundation, or a foundational truth for the believer to build our lives on. We need to know who we are in Christ before we can live how God calls His people to live. Amen? So in verse 11, we see the first imperatives. The first list of imperatives. And imperatives, they're verbs of. Verbs of. What? What did you say? Action. I like it. But they're verbs of command. Come on. I haven't said it in a, maybe a month or two. You guys know it. Verbs of command. In the Greek, imperatives. They're verbs of command. And in verse 11, we see the first one. So our new life in Christ, just summarizing, our new life in Christ must result in actions. There we are, Deb. Must result in new actions. New life, new actions that we can summarize into three broad exhortations or appeals, right? In 11 through 23. Now this morning we're only going to have time to consider the first. So the first is this. Christians must consider themselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Now, that's just verse 11 straight out. He says, you are, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Now, that word consider in the Greek is pretty interesting. It's logizomai. Now, if you were here in Romans 4 and you took copious notes, then you know that that word logizomai, it can refer to mathematical equations like we see elsewhere in Scripture, but it most literally means to count, to compute, to calculate, to take into account, or make account of. We saw it repeatedly there in Romans 4, where Paul gave us his illustration of justification by faith alone. Very essential, essential doctrine. Abraham was the primary example of justification by faith alone. And we said that that word logizomai, there in Romans 4, it meant to credit to someone else's account, to charge to someone else's account. And we talked about the great exchanges in Romans 4. That the believer's sin was credited, or logizomai, to Christ's account. The believer's sin credited, logizomai, to Christ's account. And Christ's righteousness 
was credited or logizomai to the believer's account. The great exchange. The best exchange that you and I have ever received in our lives. Better than any sort of like transaction that we do day to day. Better than anything that we have ever experienced was these two great exchanges. Because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were in Adam and we were due. Due God's wrath. But if you are in Christ, would the moment you believed, he took your righteousness and charged it to Christ's death on the cross and gave you Christ's righteousness instead of your sin. Amen. Okay. Now in Romans 6, however, logizomai refers to the Christian's need to count, to, comp, or, uh, to compute, to calculate, to take into account or make account of and affirm the truths that Paul has just presented in the preceding 10 verses. Right, we need to check it out. We need to do the math of everything that Paul has just said. And what we can just like summarize that as is that every Christian has two volumes in their biography. Volume one was your BC days, right? Your before Christ days. Okay, nobody else had those. But this is your old nature before salvation. Where you did whatever you wanted to. It was YOLO, live my best life now. I write the rules. I do my own thing. It's all me. That's volume one. That's BC. Volume two is your new nature in Christ that started the moment that you believed. It's not like, man, I went to church camp. I gave my life to Christ. And then 10 years later, I started walking with him. No. No, volume two starts the moment that you believe. Starts the moment that you believe. That is why we've been saying repeatedly that it is impossible and inconceivable and impermissible for, to relive volume one because it's dead, it's gone, it's over. You're in volume two. That does not mean perfection. But that does mean that you should not. Verse two, that all who have, or excuse me, how can we who have died to sin still live in it? Still live in it, remain, abide in it. We can't. It's dead. That's what Paul is saying in verse 2. That's what he's been arguing to this point. We need to calculate. We need to compute that. We need to understand that uh, and come to a settled confidence in that. Come to a settled confidence in it. So we have died to sin. We have a new desire for righteousness. And we have a new power to obey God. So this kind of identity formation, it is crucial. It is critical in the life of a believer in our walk, in our growth in Christ-likeness. So it should shape everything. It should stimulate our affections for Christ. It should give us a deep sense of gratitude. It should fill us with hope as we live for God's glory in this fallen world. So the question becomes in my mind, why do we struggle to believe that we're dead to sin? Why do we struggle to believe that we are dead to sin? Now some may well have said to Paul, it's hard for me to believe I no longer possess a sinful nature. It's equally hard for me to believe that I possess a new nature and that I'm fit for eternity. I, I know what you're saying, Paul, but it's very difficult for me to affirm. And I get that. It is, it's easy to see why it's difficult to believe that we are dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Amen. It's hard to believe that we walk in this newness of life now. It is hard to believe. 
And I understand why. And I want to help you out. Four things that I think make it difficult to believe that we're dead to sin. And the first is that Satan lies. Satan lies. He, he was a liar from the beginning. He's the father of lies we see elsewhere in Scripture. He does not want the Christian to believe that sin's tyranny, the ruling governing force of sin, has been broken, defeated, finally and completely in Christ Jesus. He would much rather have you and I believe that he and his forces are in control and determine when sin gains an upper hand in our lives. Hear me now. He, he would much rather you, you just believe that, man, his forces, they get to dictate you. So when you get that urge, you just got to scratch it. Right? He would much rather have you believe that you're some passive participant in this world. That your walk with the Lord is just like you just trying to get the pot from boiling over. Right, so you give a little itch, a little scratch there, maybe it's a little show, maybe it's a little song, maybe it's a little search on the website or you know, whatever it is. I don't know what it is for you, but you do. But he would much rather have you believe that he and his forces are in control and they get to determine when sin gets an upper hand in your life. That's not true. He accuses the brethren day and night before God. And he does all that he can to bring, to bog us down into feeling the perpetual guilt and despair over our sin. I'm not talking about conviction. That comes from the Holy Spirit. I'm talking about this perpetual, unending guilt, shame, pain, and regret because of your sin. And here's the reality. You know you. I know me. We're the worst, per- we're the worst people we know, if we're honest. Right? It's not our neighbor. It's not our friend. It's not our family members. We are. We know how much we sin. And the Lord does too. You're not hiding anything from Him. We should be, if we are in Christ, convicted of our sin. We should repent. We should confess those to God and to one another. But we should not just continually just have to wail and whine and cry. If we don't do it, like, here's the thing. There are some of us, like myself, we're very, like, you know, in-house. You just deal with it all up in here and in here. People see it and feel it and hear it. My wife said, that's right. Thank you. <laughs> it has consequences. People see it. They hear it. It's body language. It's, it's the way that you walk and talk and everything else. Listen, Christ paid for it on the cross. The penalty and the power of sin has been broken in Christ. You can walk in this newness of life now. When you fall short, you pick yourself up, repent, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's done there. It's done there. We talk, I talked about casting stones. You know, like, man, throw it. Just throw it off into the sea of forgetfulness. And then you go wading out there, you pick it back up. Throw it even further. Keep throwing it. Keep throwing it to Christ. He's big enough. He's paid for. It's done and finished in Him. The penalty and the power of sin. Now... The reality is, is that Satan, he uses um, pastors, preachers, Bible teachers to come in with this really shallow, this really like um, watered down teaching, right? So many people, many Christians, they don't believe that they're dead to sin or they, they struggle to believe that they're dead to sin because it's not taught, just plain and simple. It is not taught in some places, 
They're told that Jesus came to give life and life abundant, and he did, John 10.10. And you can define this abundant life on your own terms. We said this a few weeks ago, where Jesus is not Lord, he is not Savior. He did come to give life and life abundant, but it's on his terms. Listen, it's like playing on top of a skyscraper or going to check out a view on top of a skyscraper, and there's no boundaries, there's no fence, or, and you try to set up your little fence so that you can check out the views a little bit closer to the edge. The problem is, is your fence, it, hit, it falls right off as soon as you put any pressure on it. Here's what Christ does. His word, it, it gives us these hard boundaries to enjoy life, to have life and life abundant. And we get to enjoy our time up there. Now, I don't know about you, but that scares me to death. I hate heights. Absolutely hate heights, jumped out of planes for 10 years, repelled from helicopters, did the whole thing, and I hated every single one of those moments. The last thing I wanted when I was up about to jump out of an airplane or repel out of a helicopter or even ride in any of those things is to have a, a, a terrible like safety or tie to the aircraft or whatever it was. When I, when I was tied to it, I could hang out of it. I could, a parachute, I could jump out of it. I can enjoy the heights when I have the right safeties. And your foundation, your terms are terrible safeties. His allow you to enjoy it and enjoy it in abundance. The third reason that we struggle to believe that we're dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus is our ongoing conflict with sin. And the key issue is this, we don't understand our identity in Christ. We don't understand our identity in Christ. So when we get together, what we need to do is teach what God's Word really says. It's not about daily affirmations telling ourselves that we're so marvelous, that we're so wonderful, that we're so loved, that we're so this and we're so that. It is not that. It is getting into the Word because God is talking to you through His Word. He's teaching you who He is. He's teaching you who you are in Christ. And He's teaching you how He wants you to live in Christ. Amen? We need to get into the Word because you can't love who you don't know. You can't obey who you don't know or else you're, just, you're, you're trusting these YouTube and these TikTok theologians to teach you what it means to walk with the Lord. Listen, that is why, that is why we live in a day and age where, where Christianity from one place to another looks so different. This is why we, we spend so much time shooting each other, not literally but figuratively talking about this church and that church and this church and that church. And I agree, we do need to call some things out. Amen. We do need to call some things out. But we need to get into the Word. Amen. We need to get into the Word. We need to have charity with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Patience. We need to pray for them and walk alongside them. But they don't need your advice. They need the Word. So the last thing, the, the last reason that I think we struggle to believe that we're dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus is the non-experiential nature of salvation. Hear me again, the non-experiential nature of salvation. We live in a time where experience, specifically feeling and emotion, are incre increasingly sought after and promoted above truth. 
feelings, emotion, experience. They're sought after and promoted above truth. Here's the reality. Redemption is not a feeling. It's a divine transaction. So we can't physically experience the transaction at the heart of salvation that of dying in Christ and being buried with Him in baptism and being resurrected with Him. So that's why we see some who come to saving faith in Christ Jesus who the Lord saves and, and they're just all out, like it breaks them. It not only breaks them, but then it, 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 it encourages them so much that they cry, that they, you know, they're all over the place. Like, man, you could have two different experiences. That person, same, same day, same time, whatever. You have somebody who the Lord saves, and, and they're pretty reserved. You can have everything in between, but this is what we do. We make the first the pattern. Well, they're not saved unless they cried, unless they jumped for joy and ran 18 laps around the church. Redemption is a divine transaction, right? You, you, don't, you don't feel dying with Christ, being buried with Him in baptism and being resurrected with Him to walk in this newness of life. But we can't make the first the pattern and make it the norm because what it does is it creates this, it creates this uh, pendulum, and I talk about pendulums pretty often, but it creates this pendulum in the Christian life where you, you, don't, you don't trust God's Word for what it is and what it says. Right? I, I need a feeling. I need, I need this emotion. I need this experience to know that God still loves me or that I'm still in Christ. You can't lose your salvation. Hey, there it is. But, but you, you're, you're relying on, on goosebumps, instead of God's Word. You're relying on tears instead of God's Word. You're relying on, on this joy instead of God's Word. God's Word, not your experience, your feelings, or your emotions, those things are important. Don't hear me wrong. But they are not infallible. They are not. They, 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 they are going to lead you astray. Trust God's Word. That is sure. Amen? Okay. Now again, experience, feelings, and emotions, they are not bad things, but they are not. They are not the sure thing. They are not firm, a firm foundation like God's Word. That is the most believable proof possible. So I don't know what it is for you here this morning. Maybe it's believing Satan's lies. Maybe it's your ongoing conflict with sin. Maybe it's um, shallow teaching that you've trusted in the past. Maybe it's the you're chasing, you're promoting feelings and emotions over, or experience, excuse me, over God's Word. But you won't be able to live the way that God has called you to live. You won't be able to grow in Christ's likeness until you know who you are in Christ dead to sin and alive to God. The old man has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. Amen? Get to know. Forget the lies. Forget the myths. Forget the misconceptions. You have everything you need, all the divine resources that you will ever need in this lifetime to grow in Christ-likeness. You have a new power and capacity to obey Him. Amen? 
You have brothers and sisters in Christ to provide accountability, encouragement, and support. You have his word. Dawson was talking about it earlier, the patriarchs, you know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, like their lives were, they were not perfect, amen? And that's a great reminder. Neither was Joshua's. There was only one person who walked this earth who had a perfect life, and that's Jesus. But what we see in Joshua and the rest, well, his posterity, is that they got, the closer that they stuck to God's word, the better they were. And that can be true of us with the indwelling Holy Spirit in us. And hey, if you are not in Christ this morning, there are still two options. Either you pay for the penalty of sin yourself, which is death, eternal death, eternal separation from God, where you spend eternity in hell, or you trust in the one who paid it for you. If you're believing those lies, you're going to live this weak and pathetic Christian life, and that's not God's will for you. Your sanctification is God's will for you. Growth in Christ-likeness. Amen. Your holiness. Leave the lies here this morning, whatever ones they are. Talk to your brothers and sisters in Christ and tell them which ones you're struggling with. And get connected, get in God's word and get in prayer. Let's pray.